allegorical life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership, and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan. We're here with Mark Crosweller, and today we're talking about the subject of trust. So, Mark, you've written about trust in the context of learnings from your own career in emergency management, but what are the other areas of your life that have led you to contemplate the subject? Is it as much about the personal journey as the professional? Oh, absolutely. Trust is so fundamental to relationship, and relationship um, arises almost every minute of every day in your life. So whether you're interacting with people at work or at home, with your families, um, with society, the, the shopkeeper, you know, the cafe owner, the barista. On some level, you're in you're in relationship, and some of those relationships are important, um, critical, uh, fundamental to your life, to the meaning of your life. Um, others are just uh, around courtesies and and uh, and just navigating through life, really. But at the end of the day, um, you're in we are in constant relationship, and so. If we're in constant relationship, then what underpins that is the extent to which people can trust you. And I often say to people that, and people often ask, you know, when they talk about trust, they say, look, you know, can I trust that person? Can I trust that institution? Can I, you know, can I trust that piece of information? And that's what I call the second question. So, Mark, what is that first question? So, the first question is, can I trust myself? And most people don't ask it, so they project onto the world. So they're looking for things to trust. They look to their, to, can they trust their partner? Can they trust their boss? Can they trust their kids? Can they trust their bank? Can they trust their church? Can they trust the media? And so on. Not many people stop and say, actually, do I trust myself? Do I, do I trust my intuition? Do I trust my moral compass? Do I trust my ethics? Do I trust my judgments? You know, do I trust my knowledge? That's a much harder question to answer, but it's one worth asking because Trust, like any um, virtue, has to be practiced. You have to practice it. And, Mark, how have you come to learn those important lessons about trusting yourself first? Trust is important to me. It has been my whole life. It just took me many years to understand that. And there were life circumstances that, that turned up that forced me to look at my inner world, my inner self, and say, well, can you trust your judgments here? Can you trust your intuition, despite the fact that the external world is presenting or you're interpreting it in such a way on one level to say that, you know, there's nothing more you can do or there's nothing more you can say or whatever, that intuitively, internally, uh, I had a different perspective, and that is I had to trust that what I was about to do, what I was about to say, or what I was thinking was, in fact, on the money. And that played out very, very overtly on the 18th of January 2003 in Canberra. And I've told this story many times, but being sent down to that jurisdiction from New South Wales as an assistant commissioner um, with a fire that was raging out of the Brindabella Ranges towards the city of Canberra. And um, I was asked to respond down there and see if I could negotiate and navigate the deployment of more resources from New South Wales into the ACT. And um, had a long conversation with a with a person who was in charge at the time, one of many, of course, about the deployment of those resources, and and we had a quite a uh, heated conversation about whether those resources were necessary in the circumstances, and and he'd almost convinced me that I was wrong and he was right, that there was no need for anything else, that they they had everything in hand and. It was all fine. So I stood there. He walked off and I stood there and I had no powers, authorities, resources, nor permission. So anyone in uniform as I was for 27 years 
uh, who doesn't have those things, the rational world says, well, there's nothing more you can do. So no power, no resource, no permissions, and so on and so forth. Then that's it. You're at the end of the line. But intuitively, I thought, hang on a minute. Um, I can't do nothing here. Like, I, I don't... I don't believe what he said. I, I think I think he's got it wrong. Not to not to make him morally wrong, but I think his assessment was wrong. And I had to had to trust my intuition and my gut that my assessment was right. And so, moral dilemma. You know, the rational world says, "Mark, nothing more you can do." In fact, if you do anything else, you'll probably get into trouble. You'll probably break the law, and it could cost you your career. And I stood there and I thought, well. Despite that, morally, I can't do nothing. You have to do something. So I went across back into New South Wales, back into my jurisdiction, went to the, to the uh, local district office, and and uh, for the only time in my career, I issued a directive to a, a more junior officer who happened to be older than me but more junior in rank and directed him to release his resources and into Canberra to see what we could do to assist. And... So I was breaking the law, essentially. I was breaking every every um, code of practice because morally, ethically, I couldn't do nothing. And I, th- I thought I'd probably lose my career over this, but it turned out that I was lauded for the decision and lauded for the efforts. And what it taught me was this, that at the deepest level, I just had to trust my judgment. And I had to make a decision, you know, what, what could I live with? Could I live with doing nothing? and being safe and, and, and following rules and complying with society's structures and systems? Or do I step forward and, and answer my moral conscience? And I did that. I had to go very deep and it was a quite a profound experience, profound emotional experience. I mean, when, I, when he first said, no, go away, and I, I, for, a, for a small moment I thought he was right, I felt physically ill. I went cold and clammy and felt like throwing up. Um, because I doubted myself. I'd, he had said enough for me to doubt my assessments and my judgment. But when I fl- reflected upon it, I realised that that the reason I felt so ill was I was going against my intuition. I was going against what I truly believed and what I thought really ought to happen. And so I just had to trust that my judgments, that my decisions and my actions were meritorious, were, were, were as virtuous as I could make them or as beneficial as I could make them. And wherever that went, if that meant losing my career, then I could still sleep well at night. You're listening to the Allegorical Life Podcast. Mark, you mentioned that when you ask uh, members of the police, fire and emergency services about the meaning of their uniform and what the meaning of the badges are that they wear on their uniforms, they may, they may not always get to the right meaning that you think that they, they represent. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I've, uh, I was in uniform you know, part-time uh, at the start of my career, but, but full-time uniform for most of it for 27 years. And uh, yeah, most people, myself included, in my early career, you know, that uniform was was certainly symbolic, but it was more symbolic of culture. It was more symbolic of difference, um, more symbolic of uh, you know why we existed in a in a um, self reflexive sense. So it wasn't necessarily, or wasn't at all, really about how we presented to society or community more broadly. It was more about what we stood for. So it was quite 
quite insular, really. Not, not, not again, not to be judgmental about it, but but quite sort of self-reflexive. But but again, I kind of realised over the course of my career that that's not how other people saw it, and so this internalising of symbolism of uniform. Uh, tends to make cultures exclusive. It tends, tend, they tend to use the uniform to show difference. So they say, look, you know, I'm a volunteer, I'm not paid, or I'm paid, I'm not a volunteer, or I'm a, I'm a rural firefighter, not an urban firefighter, or I'm a land manager, or I'm a police officer, or I'm an ambulance officer. They're all perfectly fine. I mean, they are functions and roles in society. And there's a lot attached to that, and, and rightfully so. People take an enormous amount of pride um, and self-worth from those images, and so they should. They're, they're, they're very honourable careers and honourable things to do. But there's a little bit missing in, in that perception or that interpretation of the symbol. And, and when you turn it around, it actually um, becomes a symbol of trust in society. So I come back to the point of trust. And, and so if we just use it to identify culture and difference and roles and responsibilities... Um, and status and titles that attaches and and, um, and meanings around um, self satisfaction and so on and so forth. None of which are wrong, but a bit limiting. So when I looked at it, I thought, hmm, these are, these uniforms are in fact strong symbols of trust in society. And I use I give three examples when I talk about this publicly. That you know, if I if I put on a uniform and walk into the town of in certain corners of the world. People literally hand over money. That, that's how you, that's how people stay safe, or that's how they navigate those authorities. They pay money to the uniforms, and they're given protection, or they stay safe. And often, those cultures and societies have to operate that way because there's just simply not enough money in 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 how people make their living to not do that. So I'm not I'm not necessarily casting harsh moral judgments here, but it is a fact that. And I've experienced it in my dealings overseas that often that, you know, greasing of the palm or that handing over of money is what makes things happen. Um, in other corners of the world, you put on a uniform and walk into town and the women and children run for their lives and men take up arms. And we're seeing that play out in you know, much of the Middle East, for example, and uh, it's a very strong symbol of death and destruction and all that comes with it. And, and people just don't trust anyone in uniform. Anyone that sort of walks into town, it's to, to be deeply mistrusted. But in Australia, you put on a uniform and walk into a, a community and or walk down the street and go into a cafe, it doesn't matter where you go really, people will put their trust in you automatically. If they're in trouble, they'll come up to you. Um, they'll see the symbolism of your organisation, but they'll see it from the point of view of trust, not so much about status and not so much about role or not so much about difference, but certainly in relation to trust. And it's happened to me many times in my career you know, having either pulled up in a car accident uh, in uniform, of course, and, and automatically people come straight up with a sense of confidence and and, and an expectation of competence to, to you know that, that you know what you're doing, and and they automatically put their trust in you because they don't know what they're doing, they don't know what to do, they don't know what's happened, and in many respects that's a nice thing, it's a great honour, but it, but again it's it's symbolic of trust. Straight away people walk up and say, "Can you please help me?" I mean, it's, it's a bit lighthearted, but I remember walking into Target one day in a local shopping centre and um, in my fire service uniform, which used to have a white shirt and badges on the shoulder, and a lady walked up and asked me if I could help her get something off the top shelf because she thought I was the store security guard. And it, this is in the one experience, and then not five minutes later, a lady lost her handbag and asked me could I help her with the handbag. And then the third thing, I think, from memory, was that uh, a gentleman asked me if I could help him carry something to the car. <laughs> 
Um, now, I was actually an assistant commissioner of the fire service, but they just saw a uniform, and 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 without thinking twice, they just walked up and asked for some help in, in many different ways. And uh, again, I sort of thought, well, how powerful is that? Yet, our cultures don't necessarily understand that and how valuable that is in Australian society, how incredibly valuable it is, and how it needs to be upheld and honoured. And what tends to happen in big adversities, big, big disasters, is that, that that trust gets breached on some level because there's expectations of competence and there's expectations of uh, knowledge and, and uh, so on and so forth, and those things can run short when adversity rises with great complexity. Uh, and, um, and I talk much about this in crisis emergency, emergency management about really understanding how important that trust is and how, and how to hold on to it. So, Mark, you had a long and distinguished career in emergency services. How does the trust relationship work in communities and what learnings can leaders uh, in any field take away from that? The notion of the symbol of trust in, in uh, particularly in emergency services, emergency management, but but more broadly, even into, into the into corporate life, into institutions, is is a fundamental building block of society. It's what um, is called in the literature this notion of ontological security. So, w- w- what I mean by that is that people um, hold and possess knowledge and expertise, such as police, fire, emergency services, institutions, corporations government hold expertise and people rely upon that expertise and that competency and that leadership for their safety. So, so there's a, is this ontological security is about saying, look, I, in the absence of those things, in the absence of those institutions and their knowledge and their expertise and their capability and their competency, I would feel less safe and I feel safer because those things are present. So natural disasters are, or natural hazards that create disasters are a great example of how quickly society places its trust and its ontological security on that entire framework of institutions and individuals that is responding to uh, crisis and adversity and, and doing their best to deal with it. And so people put an enormous amount of trust in those systems and those things and those people. When they hit their limits and uh, the adversity becomes so complex that those competencies and capabilities don't necessarily produce any effectiveness, then trust is really on the line. It's really, really on the line and um, because it means that adversity has taken over. It means that harm is rising and people are suffering and people may suffer even more so if that capability and competency doesn't, doesn't step up. So. So the question for a leader is, well, in those circumstances, and this can happen in the corporate world as well as the world of crisis and emergency management, how do you navigate through that? How do you navigate and make sure that you hold on to that trust that people have given you? And that is absolutely a question of two things, character and competence, the character of the leader and their competence. And and so very, very important, very, very important to understand that whilst we can assign symbolism to uniforms and, and corporate logos and things which are about self, uh, institutional self or individual self. What others see is symbols of trust or symbols of faith or symbols of reliability or symbols of competence, and they're the things we've got to honour. Those, those are the things that we have to tap into and honour. So if it's only symbolism about us and how it makes us feel and, and what we get from it, we are likely to miss the point. And we'll, we'll let that trust erode, we'll let it slip away, 
uh, or it will disappear, and then it will take an enormous amount of time to get it back again. And this has happened in most crises in Australia, particularly natural hazard crises. Um, you've seen this big dent in trust um, where people had an expectation on governments and their institutions and their people to get them through. And on some level, um, sometimes spectacularly so, that didn't happen to the expectation of the majority. And what was breached was trust. And what took 10 years or more to get back was to reclaim that trust. And it took an enormous amount of convincing uh, and evidence, actions and evidence, to demonstrate to society or community or the individual that the trust was worth um, recovering. Um, And so I would say to leaders, try not to lose it to start with. So it requires people to be very honest about what they're capable of, what they're not capable of, uh, what they're thinking, how they're feeling, what they know, what they don't know, to show a vulnerability, to show a, a sensible vulnerability, a genuine vulnerability, a relatedness to those that they're leading, and a commitment to get them through, that they will do everything they can within their power, mentally and physically, to do whatever they can to help those people get through. And if you establish that sort of premise with an ethic um, or, or with a moral compass or, or with a competency, then you're highly likely to uphold that trust, irrespective of the outcome. And so we may still lose a lot. We could even lose people. And there'll be a lot of grief and sadness uh, about all of that. But what will be fundamentally upheld is the trust that people placed upon us and which we do the best of our ability honoured. Thanks for joining us today on the Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.